Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are. I want to welcome everyone to LSE's online events platform. My name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department and director of the Phelan United States Center, which is hosting today's event. At a time when the United States has passed the grim threshold of 700,000 COVID-related deaths and roughly 1,800 Americans are still dying daily from COVID. Today's talk, this evening's talk, could not be more timely or germane. And we're very pleased to be welcoming Lawrence Wright back to the LSE to talk about his book, The Plague Year, America in the Time of COVID. I think most of you in the audience are already familiar with Mr. Wright's work. He's the author of many things, histories, novels, movies, plays, New Yorker columns and the highly acclaimed The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11, which won the Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction in 2007 and has been translated into more than two dozen languages. It's really great to have Lawrence back here. A few words about the format for this evening. Lawrence will get us started with about 20 or so minutes of comments. Um, we'll then open it up for discussion. We've left plenty of time here for, um, for questions, so please don't be shy. You can send your questions to us via the Q&A function on Zoom, um, and I'll do my level best to put as many of them as possible to Lawrence during the, um, during the discussion period. Now, normally at this point, I would ask you to put your hands together to give our speaker, to give Lawrence one of those warm LSC welcomes that we're famous for. But that's not possible, of course, tonight. So in lieu of applause, I encourage you to pose your questions in the Q&A period. Lawrence, welcome to LSE's online platform. It's really great to have you back with us today. Oh, thanks, Peter. I'm delighted to be back at LSE, however virtually it may be. Uh, and good to see you again. Um, so I thought uh, our time would best be used by addressing the unanswered questions of the pandemic. And I'm going to address three of them. And the first one was, did China cause COVID-19? I mean, in November 2019, there was an unrecognized pneumonia circulating in Wuhan. Uh, and a doctor named Ai Fin, who was head of the emergency department, uh, asked for a lab report for one of her patients. There were several patients in the hospital who had similar symptoms of, of cough, uh, fever, and some of them had a connection to a wet market uh, in Wuhan, a wet market being a place where they sometimes sell exotic animals like alligators and snakes and skunks uh, for cosmetics or food, and they're, they're slaughtered in front of the customers, and that's the reason they call it a wet market. So, a lab report came back and it said that the patient was suffering from SARS. Now, SARS was a coronavirus that was epidemic in China in 2002 and three, and it came from bats, this much we know. Uh, it passed through an intermediate animal, a mast palm civet that was sold in a wet market in Guangdong. So that's the template against which we look at this. SARS was the first epidemic 
since HIV AIDS dangerous enough to threaten the entire world. It killed 10% of the people that it infected. And so World Health Authorities went to China in 2003 to try to find out what was going on. And during that time, uh, the Chinese authorities reportedly hid patients from the WHO, uh, put, placing them in ambulances or taxis until the authorities were gone. But by that time, the disease had spread to Hong Kong, Hanoi, Singapore, Taiwan, Ulaanbaatar, Toronto, and San Francisco. And it was only the result of an immense effort by public health authorities and incredible luck that SARS, that first epidemic, uh, was contained. International health regulations were rewritten to, uh, to address the lack of transparency on the part of the Chinese government. Now, that lab report that Dr. I asked for was wrong. It wasn't SARS. It was another coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19. COVID-19 was the first test in China of the effectiveness of the new health regulations. And how did the Chinese authorities react this time? Well, they smothered the news. They persecuted the doctors, including Ai Fin, who warned their colleagues of the danger of this new disease. They forced labs to surrender samples of the virus. They stopped labs from trying to work on genetic sequences. They, they scoured the web and social media, eliminating references to pneumonia and diseases in Wuhan. They ordered hospital staff not to wear masks in case it might cause panic and denied there was human-to-human -human transmission. All this as frontline workers were falling ill, many of them getting infected by their patients. So on January 3rd, 2020, Dr. Robert Redfield, who was the director of the American CDC, called his counterpart in China, George Gao. And Gao assured him that the disease was not transmissible among humans. And Redfield was a little suspicious and he urged Gao to look more closely at the data. Was it spreading in families, for instance? Uh, a sure sign of human transmission. A few days later, they spoke again and this time, Gao burst into tears. Uh, he said, I think we're already too late. Redfield said, let me send a team to help out, a CDC team of experts, virologists, epidemiologists, to look into what was going on in China and, and maybe find out some news that we could use. Uh, and Gao said he wasn't authorized to allow that, but he should, that Redfield should ask the Chinese government the government refused repeated requests uh, for an American team, or as far as I know, any Western team to go into the country. What would they have found if they had been allowed into China at that time? They would have found certainly that it was a humanly transmissible disease, but more important than that, it was spread by asymptomatic transmission. In other words, a person could have the virus, but not manifest the disease and spread it. Now, this was something that nobody in public health uh, circles had any idea that was happening. And the world would have reacted entirely differently if they had known this early on, but they didn't have that opportunity. Now, why do some scientists believe that COVID-19 was invented in a lab? 
I mean, viruses emerge from nature all the time. Influenza typically comes from birds. Uh, HIV came from chimpanzees. Ebola and Nipah, uh, probably from bats. SARS, the first SARS, did come from horseshoe bats in limestone caverns in Yunnan province in southern China. In one of those caverns in, in southern China, there's a copper mine. And in the spring of 2012, six men who were sweeping up the bat droppings fell ill. They got fever, cough, pneumonia, and they were hospitalized. Three of them died. Uh, an attending physician described the disease as acute and fierce. The autopsy said that they died of a SARS-like coronavirus. A team of Chinese scientists led by Shi Zing Li, who is the head of the Wuhan Institute of Virology lab devoted to coronaviruses, uh, went to examine uh, the situation there. She is one of China's most famous scientists, uh, for worldwide famous for her work on coronaviruses and bats. And she took blood and tissue samples from the miners, but she also went to the cavern where the, the mine was and uh, collected tissue and samples from the bats and found, you know, hundreds of coronaviruses in the bats. Some of the bats were infected with multiple coronaviruses. That's one of the things about viruses is they can get into the body and recombine and create a new, new virus and reshuffle the genetic deck. One of the samples that Xi Zhengli took was, she labeled RATG13, called RAT13, which is 96% similar to SARS-CoV-2. The first SARS is only 82% similar to SARS-CoV-2. So maybe that's the way that uh, this virus emerged. Uh, it came from bats traveling the same path as SARS, passing through an intermediate animal. This is what happened with MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, another coronavirus, which came from Egyptian tomb bats and uh, got into camels and that way passed into the human population. In the case of uh, COVID-19, the uh, intermediate animal suspect is a uh, pangolin. Uh, pangolins are scaly anteaters that are sometimes sold in those wet markets. And this is exactly what Dr. Fauci believes happened. Uh, went from bats to pangolins into wet market into humans. What's wrong with that scenario? Well, one is Wuhan is a thousand miles away from those caverns where the bats are. Uh, the bats would have been hibernating during the period of time that the disease emerged. RAT13 is, although similar uh, to COVID-19, uh, is not contagious to humans. There's no evidence that a virus in the animals that were sold in the wet market and no intermediate animal has been found. Moreover, there's genetic evidence. SARS-1 left an evolutionary trail as it struggled to adapt uh, to the human host through re repeated infections. You can trace this evolution as new strains emerge, whereas SARS-2 entirely misses this early phase of adaptation. It was an amazingly successful human disease right off the bat.
This is why Dr. Redfield thinks it was created in a lab. So how do we resolve this question? Perhaps if we could find patient zero, we would know. Perhaps one of the miners in Yunnan province got a coronavirus from a bat and it recombined in his lungs with another virus. That miner's serum was frozen in Shi Zingli's lab. Maybe a researcher took it out of the refrigerator to work with and became infected. That, research, that researcher might not even have shown any signs of, of disease. That's one scenario about how it might have leaked out of a lab. Now, lab leaks are far more common than people realize. Uh, dangerous diseases have leaked out of the CDC uh, and Fort Detrick, uh, two of the most secure labs in America. Uh, Ebola and Marburg have leaked out. Uh, in the UK, smallpox leaked out of labs on three occasions, killing nearly 100 people. SARS has leaked out of, leaked out of uh, labs in China on at least four occasions that we know of. So that is a possibility. There's another factor to consider. Uh, in, it's a, there's an experiment called gain of function. In 2012, Ron Fauchier, who's a, a distinguished virologist from the Netherlands, uh, took a look at a, an influenza, an avian influenza, that's designated H5N1. Sometimes in China, uh, farmers get infected from poultry flocks uh, from H5N1. And when that happens, 60% of them die. It's an incredibly mortal disease. So Fauchier, wondering, you know, this might one day become a human disease, decided to experiment to see what would it take to turn this avian influenza into a possible human flu. When you do a gain-of-function test, one way to do it is to take a virus from the bird and infect a ferret, which is often used in laboratories as a human substitute. And then when that, vi when that ferret gets sick, you take the virus from that ferret and infect another ferret and then another. And that's the way the virus sometimes adapts to a new host and becomes a ferret disease. And it passes then on its own from one ferret to another. But presumably, it would also infect humans. Now, Fauchier found that it took only three passes for it to become a human disease. He might as well have created a hydrogen bomb. It was that dangerous. Such experiments are typically done in what are called BSL-4 labs, biosafety level four. It's the highest level of safety for that kind of work. That's where people walk around in spacesuits and the, 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 the air is negatively pressured so nothing can escape. And the Wuhan Institute of Virology is designated a BSL-4 lab. But the gain of function tests that Shi Zingli and her colleagues were doing were not done at level four safety. They were done at level two, which is commonly described as the level of safety you find in a dentist office. Chinese social media nominated a, a researcher in Xi Zingli's lab as patient zero. And recently, American intelligence um, reported that three researchers in that laboratory uh, showed COVID-like symptoms in November of 2019 and were hospitalized. 
twice the World Health Organization has sent research teams to China to try to find out where this virus originated. And the second time, uh, the team reported that the lab leak theory was extremely unlikely. But they didn't thoroughly investigate that. And the director of the WHO renounced his own team's findings and is putting together yet a third team, although China has not allowed them to, uh, to be admitted or says they won't be admitted. So will we ever know? I think given the lack of transparency in China, we'll only know if it turns out that we can find it in nature. And that way we can say, yes, of course, this is the way it but otherwise, I think we will never know. If Chinese researchers created this virus in a lab and it accidentally escaped, it was merely a terrible mistake. But if the Chinese government knew this, that the, how the disease emerged and covered it up, it's one of the great crimes in history. Four million people have died so far. The second question I'm going to address is why did America fail? You know, in October of 2019, a month before COVID-19 is thought to have first appeared in Wuhan, the Global Health Security Index was published, ranking the nations of the world according to their preparedness for a pandemic. Number one, the best prepared country in the world for a pandemic was the United States. Number two was the UK. So if you had turned these rankings upside down, it might have been a truer uh, representation of what actually was going to occur with nations like Vietnam and Latvia and Angola doing far better than their more industrialized counterparts. So what happened? There were plans. The Obama administration turned over a playbook to the incoming uh, Trump administration uh, that was meant to be pulled off the shelf when everything went haywire. And the number one threat was respiratory viruses, influenza, uh, orthopox viruses like smallpox and coronaviruses. And the playbook told you who to call uh, if you have a if dispose of hazardous waste. How do you implement quarantine? How do you evacuate large numbers of people? How do you bury them uh, for an incoming uh, administration with little idea of the scope of the federal government? It was a valuable document, but... The Trump administration threw it away and they had their own tabletop exercise called Crimson Contagion. And Peter, it is absolutely creepy to read this now because it's spookily prescient. This, the scenario for the exercise was a traveler returns from China to his hometown in Chicago. He's got a dry cough. His son goes to a rock concert the next day. Six months later, 586,000 Americans are dead, very close to the actual reality. So what were the findings of the Trump administration's own study? First of all, federal agencies didn't know who was in charge. States were going to be looking to the federal government to take the lead. Businesses were going to struggle to, to operate when their employees were afraid to come to work. The national storehouse was already severely depleted of personal protective equipment and ventilators, and the lack of manufacturing in the U.S. were making those supplies. Public health institutions were hollowed out after decades of budget cuts. Hospital capacity had diminished, and the supply chain was compromised. And the longer the contagion went on, the more chaotic 
everything became. Robert Cadillac, the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services, told me we saw the movie. We knew before the movie started it was going to have a bad ending. But knowing that, the Trump administration did nothing to change the outcome. There were no lessons learned. So finally, how will history judge this period? Assuming it pays very much attention to it at all. I mean, history is written mainly about human activity. If you imagine a foreign adversary attacking America and killing half a million people, how would we have reacted? Despite our civil discord, I'm sure that we would have solidified and done everything we could to vanquish the enemy. But that's not how we behave when the adversary is nature. In 2014, my wife and I were doing a trek in England. We went on the pilgrim's path from Rochester to Dover, which where Chaucer's pilgrims made their way to Canterbury. And we'd often take our lunch. And there are lots of beautiful old churches that are preserved along the way. And we'd sit in the churchyard and have our lunch. And something struck me reading the tombstones, the date. 1918, the year of the Spanish flu, which killed an estimated 50 to 100 million people. It's like the iridium layer uh, in, in geology, the, the little line in Earth's surface that marks, the, marks where the comet struck and killed all the dinosaurs. 1918 runs through the cemeteries all over the world. But it was essentially buried in human consciousness. People didn't remember uh, the the massive pandemic. Uh, It was overshadowed by the First World War. Although the flu killed even more soldiers than the war did. It killed 675,000 Americans. And we've already passed that number now. One out of 500 Americans who was alive in January of 2020 is now dead of COVID-19. The death rate in America is eight times higher than than the rest of the wealthier world. But if history does pay attention to this pandemic, I think it will look at it through three different lenses. One is I think history will see this as an X-ray. It was an opportunity for us to look inside our societies and see all the broken places. That knowledge allows social change. I I spoke to Gianna Pomata, who's a medical historian in Bologna, Italy. She compared COVID-19 to the Black Death in Italy in the 14th century, not in terms of the scale of death. I mean, the Black Plague killed a third of Europe. But in terms of the change in attitude, uh, it took place at a, during the pietistic Middle Ages, a period of feudalism, a period where medicine was largely based on astrology. When the king of France asked his medical faculty at the University of Paris, where did this disease come from? They told him it was a triple conjunction of Saturn Jupiter and Mars in the 40th degree of Aquarius, which occurred on March 20th, 1345, something wasn't working and minds were open. And those open minds were what led to the Renaissance. I'm not suggesting we're gonna have a Renaissance exactly, 
But we already see that societies are reshaping themselves and new paradigms of work, science, government, culture, and family life are taking place. Not a single feature of our, our society is untouched. Another lens through which history may view this is, is that COVID-19 was a harbinger. Deadlier and more contagious viruses await us. And they'll be arising from the natural world, uh, in part because of the encroachment of humanity into what were formerly natural sanctuaries, but also because of global warming, which is forcing animals out of those habitats. We're lucky that COVID-19 kills only about 2% of the people it infects. Uh, just since the turn of the century, we've seen SARS killing 10% of, of the people it infects. MERS kills 35%. NEPA kills 70%. And in addition, we've had bird flu, Ebola, West Nile, Zika, new viruses emerging constantly at a faster clip. COVID-19 should be a warning. Deadlier encounters are inevitable unless we heed the lessons this pandemic is trying to teach us. And the final thing I would say is history may look at this as a gift. COVID-19 allowed humanity to protect itself against the plagues of the future, developing new vaccines and novel therapies and guiding us to create stronger, more resilient and compassionate societies. This may be a dream, but I, the alternative is a nightmare. So Peter, I now would like to turn it over to you. That's great. Lawrence, thanks so very much for, um, I, I really like the way that you um, frame this in terms of these kind of three um, unanswered um, questions. And I'm, I know that we're gonna have a lot of questions from the audience. I think while people are, framing their questions and I encourage everybody to pose questions. And I know that we have folks from the US, we have folks from the UK, Canada, Peru, Sweden, Mexico, Australia, and Italy on here right now. And maybe that list will grow uh, over the, the remaining part of this hour. I, I think maybe I'll put, I, I have a bunch of questions. And you know, I, as I was going through the book, different things kind of occurred to me. Some you've already alerted, alluded to. I had a China question for you. I wanted to kind of drill down there. Maybe we'll come back to it. Um, there was something very arresting about um, the analogy that you draw to kind of preparation for war at the very end of the book. But I, I was struck that you ended on a very optimistic note, but one of the threads through the book, it seems to me, and you know, easily a, a full chapter is devoted to this. Is that, and it's much more sobering. Is that in the United States, and not only in the United States, COVID is not an equal opportunity killer. Mm -hmm. At, um, as and you develop these statistics of just how disproportionately it has affected the um, the African-American community and, and a lot of people don't realize this, the Hispanic community in the United States. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about this and why that is the, as you were doing the research for this, I mean, what do you identify as the 
the main factors there? Is it the nature of the workplace and who's got to be kind of on the front lines? Is Are there other factors at play? Yeah, the frontline thing is valuable. I mean, the many of the people working in the hospitals uh, are, you know, ethnic minorities uh, and food delivery people. I mean, you know, every everything that society depended upon uh, was um, overrepresented by minorities. And I think another thing is that, you know, just access to health care, uh, you know, to start with, um, Racial minorities in the U.S. have much, much lower access uh, to uh, hospitals. Uh, there are lots of times uh, communities where there aren't any hospitals uh, or what they have is very meager. They, they might have emergency rooms and stuff like that. But, you know, access to ongoing health care and, of course, the absence of health care uh, insurance in the U.S., uh, national insurance, makes uh, a big difference, I think. But. The other thing that is so sad in the U.S. is most of the people who died had pre-existing conditions. And, uh, you know, it was, America was sick before COVID-19 ever arrived on its shores. And it was like, you know, the, the harvester. And um, so people who had diabetes, who were overweight, who had you know, kidney problems and so on, were far more susceptible, far, far more likely to die of this disease. And it was, it's an unfortunate truth in America is that minorities have a far higher uh, prevalence of pre-existing diseases and therefore were far more mortal, uh, more exposed to mortality. And I think that's the number one reason that minorities have been uh, struck so hard in this pandemic. So I suppose one question that might be on people's minds, certainly as I was, when I was going through the book, you described Trump as a saboteur, you know, and when it comes to managing COVID, um, we're now, nearly nine months into the Biden presidency. I I suppose, you know, kind of looking back and having the advantage of time um, as well, I mean, how would you characterize um, Biden's approach to this? And in what ways does it differ? And I'm, I'm less interested in here and kind of like who's better and who, you know, and more like what are the takeaways in terms of managing something like this that comes down the back? As you say, this is not the last time and you're dealing with this. So, you know, is it is it is it uh, something about an individual's makeup? Is it experience, actual kind of ex- government experience, as you point out, very few people in the White House had previous government experience. Um, is there something else? And I'm not suggesting, I mean, we, we might, maybe your view is the Biden administration actually hasn't done a very good job managing things. So anyway, I just kind of throw that out there for you to kind of parse that, if you will. Well, thank you. It's interesting to compare, you know, before I dump on Trump, <laughs> uh, I want to say that his administration did one thing that was incredibly valuable in 
you know, important in this, uh, which was Operation Warp Speed. The, you know, the decision uh, basically to uh, assure pharmaceutical companies that they would be reimbursed for any expenses they incurred in developing a COVID-19 vaccine, even if it's never used. I mean, one of the reasons pharmaceutical companies are reluctant to get into vaccine making is that it's expensive and and oftentimes doesn't work and they wind up with nothing. So uh, here, you know, we had dozens of different pharmaceutical companies uh, working on uh, vaccines and we've got many vaccines as a result of it. Now, the different that was a decision. Mm. It's not the same thing as governing. And, uh, you know, the Trump administration said that they would have 40 million people vaccinated by the end of 2020. And in fact, 2 million were. Uh, I think by their own metrics, that's a good uh, analysis of how well the Trump administration handled uh, vaccinations. Immediately upon coming into office, Biden, you know, encourages vast amount of vaccination, getting it into communities, overseeing that, you know, you really did feel like government was at work again. And there was a high rate of vaccination acceptance up until the point where everybody who wanted to get vaccinated had been. And then you're left with this repository of people who were very reluctant. And let me say a a couple of things there. Vaccines aren't always safe. You know, there are dangers that that come along with vaccination. There are people that have died after being vaccinated. Uh, I remember the the number between uh, J- December of 2020 and um, uh, June of, of of this year, uh, something like 5,000 people died after receiving a coronavirus vaccine, but only like a hundred of them died because of that. Uh, And 600,000 people, now 700,000 have died uh, uh, in comparison. So, you know, there are people that get vaccinated and they might die. It might be that they were going to die anyway, but you know, that's, uh, that's what we know. Uh, I think Biden has done a, a, an indifferent job of trying to reach out and, and persuade people uh, to overcome their hesitancy. There aren't, it, it, but the messenger is what's important. Uh, you know, the, finally, Trump made a speech a couple of weeks ago in which he, uh, he suggested that his followers get vaccinated and he was booed. I think Trumpism has left Trump and, uh, you know, it's become its own thing. But it's, you know, that is one of the real problems is that we don't have the right messengers uh, to to persuade people. Now, I think a a vaccine mandate is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Uh, You know, I was just in France where, uh, you know, which was very poorly vaccinated up until uh, the government decided that if you wanted to go out to eat, you had to prove you'd been vaccinated. And then France had made an immediate difference. And now it's one of the most highly vaccinated uh, countries in Europe. And it's safe. Uh, it's, doing, it's doing well. 
that, you know, if we did that in the U.S., there'd be a tremendous uproar, but it would also make our country safer. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I'm going to bring in some of these questions. I've got one from uh, Vivek Srivastava. Um, is it possible to quantitatively analyze the extent to which misinformation exacerbated the infection, the hospitalization, the death rates in the United States? I mean, maybe leave aside the quantitative part of it, but just the the misinformation. This is such a big issue in the United States with Facebook. And, and yeah. what are your thoughts about this as you were going through doing the research for the book? I mean, was this an accelerator um, in terms of, you know, kind of the non-vaccination rate? Um, I mean, I think if I, I think I saw a number the other day, there's still 70 million Americans who are not vaccinated, right? Something yeah. Like um, I mean, you know, it, it's down on that. It's so dismaying. I, I mean, when just hearing you talk about it, I, my heart sinks because there are people, lots of people uh, in America who are, for instance, taking worming medicine for horses uh, because they heard something on Fox or somewhere uh, that uh, this was a, an effective treatment. There's no evidence of it, none. And yet they're willing to take something like that rather than the vaccine for which there's substantial, uh, overwhelming uh, evidence of its usefulness in, in blocking the disease and especially serious disease. So it's, I asked Fauci about this and you know he, he kind of laughed. You know, he's, you know, we live in a very unruly country. Um, but I think it's, I think the answer is a little different. Countries that have done well with this, uh, have a high level of trust in their society for government and they trust science and so on. So when you look at those rankings of pandemics and so on and how we, you, our country and the UK did so poorly, well, we also distrust our, our institutions. And um, so I think that's a measure of uh, why we failed. And misinformation mm. plays into uh, the distrust. It, it throws wood on the fire. Uh, if you distrust your government, then you're more likely to accept uh, recommendations from outside uh, sources and that's why hydroxychloroquine, for instance, had uh, such a big fad. And here is the president telling you that he's taking it, uh, even though science is saying that uh, uh, that it doesn't work. Uh, the president and people on Fox News hundreds of times recommending uh, or endorsing uh, hydroxychloroquine as a way of dealing with this and the president actually suggesting you could drink bleach or you could have uh, sunshine somehow pour into your body. Uh, you know, these are hysterically uh, absurd uh, ideas, but because of the misinformation and the high level of distrust, uh, people were more apt to accept them than they were the words of science. Yeah. 
Yeah. I want to welcome uh, folks from, uh, well, I just welcomed one from India, I think, Germany, Brazil, Israel, and the Dominican Republic. So we've got, we've got questions coming in here. Um, here's one from uh, Bacha Kabede Dabella, I, I think. What are the implications of COVID-19 for the future of public administration, for the public sector? How, how should the future public sector, for example, the health sector, be organized? I mean, that's actually, that's a great question. When you're like talking to, so you like talk to plenty of people running hospitals um, and, you know, kind of really in the belly of the beast there. Um, I mean, if, you know, if they had a magic wand in terms of kind of redesigning things in the United States or beyond, I mean, what kinds of things um, is it, is it, more attention to pre-existing conditions so that the country is kind of less, as you put it, a broken society, easy prey for contagion. I think that's part of being a broken society that, that people are, are, are more robust and prepared to deal with. Yeah. Are there things institutionally that could be done at, at hospitals? I don't know, kind of wrap Take a take a crack at that. It's a great question. Yeah, there there are two things I would say. One, in the broad sense, uh, the World Health Organization has gotten a lot of criticism uh, for its handling of this pandemic, and I think it deserves it. But uh, you also have to understand that it has no authority. It's a supplicant. Uh, it has to ask countries for permission. Uh, for instance, to go in and examine, you know, where this virus might have come from. Uh, it has it has no no power at all. We need an international health organization with some teeth uh, to protect us. Um, and then the other thing is, if you go to a college campus and you look at the School of Medicine, it's going to be great. You know, it's going to knock your eyes out. You know, it's going to have the name of some big in there on it, you know, and they're going to be the wing of this and the wing of that. And then there might be a school of public health, which probably is, you know, built of wood, you know, I mean, it's, it's not nearly so glamorous. And uh, so the priorities are, are different. And uh, the, you can, you can see that, uh, you know, the, 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 the de-emphasis of public health since um, Americans, among other countries, have become so smug about the risk of contagious disease being so, so small now. Uh, we've been shown that that's not true, but that was part of it. Also, we have two separate systems in the U.S. We're the only, the only country that I know of where public health and, uh, you know, clinical health have Two, two different streams of information and they don't cross. So it's very hard to find out what's actually going on inside America because the clinical news is not, a, doesn't flow into the public health stream. Interesting. Um, and not true of the NHS system, for example, a national health system, perhaps. Not, you know, if we had one, uh, you know, it would be uh, much more easy to, uh, to, to assemble the information. 
So um, we have some other questions, general questions about, about the pandemic, but we also have, we have, well, these are about the pandemic. They're kind of inside baseball questions. And I feel like we should, we should ask them here. One is from um, Elizabeth Stokes, who's an LSE student from San Antonio. Oh, uh, yeah. so, you know, we're A fellow Texan. Yeah. Here. So could you speak a little bit about the research process for this book? Um, did new COVID research emerge as you were writing? Yes, that's got to be the case. And but how did you incorporate it into the to the narrative? And so that's a first question. But one related that comes from Andrew Payne, who's a research fellow at, um, at Oxford University, an intruder, that's true, Andy, uh, to LSE, and a big fan of God Save Texas. So he wants to know with the new information, as you were writing, you know, the pandemic was had to have been for you like a moving target as you're writing. And yeah. um, uh, how do you, how have your conclusions about the pandemic changed? I guess since you gave it, you let it go, you gave it to the copy editor. Yeah. And last time, and, you know, kind of, so partly the process of writing about this and, and what happens after you let it go and how your own thinking of, about this has changed. Well, Actually, Peter, a better way of framing this is that I wrote a novel that uh, came out in April of 2020 in the, you know, at the crest of the first big wave. And it's about a pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it, it, it's called The End of October. And in there, I, I wrote it as a kind of cautionary tale, although the tale had taken control by the time the book came out. And um, I remember a British presenter when he was interviewing me about it, said, I suppose no one would take this seriously at all if they weren't for this pandemic, <laughs> as if it was some kind of conspiracy on the part of my publisher to publish a book in the, when all the bookstores are closed. But uh, the, at that time, I was imagining what would happen if a pandemic came along like the 1918 flu. And uh, I, you know, I went out and, and interviewed people just as I would for a New Yorker article or a, a nonfiction book. And in fact, one of the people I interviewed was Barney Graham uh, at the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, which is uh, Dr. Fauci's shop. And it, he helped me design my imaginary virus. As it happens, Barney is the guy who invented the vaccine that is now in Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson and Johnson, Novax, all of those, you know, uh, but I didn't know that I was talking to the greatest immunologist of our time. But I got some things wrong uh, in that I, for one thing, I underestimated the willingness of Americans to uh, isolate themselves for months at a time. Um, it's such a great financial and emotional, spiritual cost to themselves. Um, and I, I knew that there would be geopolitical consequences, but the ones that materialized weren't exactly the ones that did happen. But uh, the blame game was there. 
the fact that, um, you know, we're blaming China and China's blaming us and the Russians are blaming us. And, the, you know, everybody has an opinion about uh, who's responsible. And so that was that was correct. Uh, but, you know, then I and I picked an influenza. It turned out to be a coronavirus, but it might well have been. It might be the next time. The the way that I went about researching this after after writing that novel, my editor at the New Yorker, David Remnick, uh, asked me to write a big dumb story, as he called it, uh, which is in journalistic phrase, the story that tries to put everything together. And, you know, bear in mind, I was stuck at home. Uh, normally, I'd be off on the road interviewing my subjects, but they were all done by Zoom or phone, which is a real loss for a reporter. I just, I missed the intimacy of those kinds of discussions. But I decided that this is a, a virus that has touched everything. There's, there's not anything in our society that's different, you know, that, that is the same. And so I, I decided I would look at institutions that represent parts of our society, Wall Street, Broadway, the White House, Congress, you know, the hospitals, and, you know, find representative characters uh, in those institutions and find people whose own story uh, was meaningful that, and would convey to the reader uh, a larger truth. And I was just incredibly lucky uh, to find the, the spokespeople that I did. I, you know, it was, some of the stories were so heartbreaking that I would be weeping as I talked to them. Uh, and some were so ennobling that I felt that I'd just gotten off the phone with some kind of saint and, or genius. Uh, you know, I had I had many such conversations and it was all in an incredibly compressed period of time. Um, so we have we have some other questions that have come in here and in uh, one of them uh, is is from um, Andrew Lone. We have a number of questions in one way or the other are are dealing with or focused on on lessons, lessons that should be learned. Um, how other nations have learned lessons. This one is about some nations, uh, he says, such as South Korea, seem to have responded um, well to uh, COVID because they made preparations after SARS. So this is a reference to countries that back in 2003, the spring of 2003, that dealt with SARS that confronted it in uh, mostly in in uh, in East Asia, East Asia and Southeast Asia, um, made preparations as a result. And I think the question here is: Is the United States or the UK capable of learning lessons in a similar way? Or I would just add to that: Is COVID different in the sense that you know SARS? It came and it hit. I happened to be in China at the time. I was our, my family and I were living in China, and it came, and it was it was bad for a period of time. And I don't want to say it magically disappeared, like Donald Trump would suggest. But I think a lot of scientists say, like with COVID, this is going to be with us for years. 
and that what we're going to have to we're going to have to learn to live with it, like we've learned to live with the flu each year. Which mm-hmm. I mean, what are your thoughts about this? Well, you know, the common cold, for instance, is caused by numerous different viruses. I think seven. Um, but four of those viruses are coronaviruses. And at one point in history, they may have been as severe as, as, as COVID-19. And over time, they became endemic in the human population and still highly contagious, but less mortal than they might have been at some point in the past. Uh, now, we could, we could eliminate coronavirus. Um, it would have to be done through vaccination. Uh, like smallpox or polio. Um, and, you know, honestly, the fact that, you know, we've got these fabulous vaccines now uh, and in novel ways of delivering it uh, through messenger RNA suggests that we might be close to a point where we can create vaccines that are universal for influenza and coronavirus and other diseases like that. Of course, they have to be universally <laughs> accepted, uh, but uh, but that can be done. Uh, it's in the realm of possibility and ability uh, to achieve that. So I think in terms of lessons, uh, you know, we tend to break things down kind of simplistically. You know, South Korea was mentioned as a as an example, and I think it's correct that they, like other Asian nations, they were schooled on SARS. Mm-hmm. Some countries in Africa learned their lesson with uh, HIV or, or Ebola. So they were more receptive to the public health message. And uh, maybe this has taught us a lesson. I, you know, there are still some people that don't want to hear it, but I think broadly the, the society uh, has become far more uh, educated, just the frequency of wearing masks. You know, there are, yes, there are lots of holdouts and people, who, but you see the majority of Americans have now learned how to wear a mask. Uh, and it used to be something you would see oftentimes with Asian tourists. But uh, now, you know, I think it's, it's far more common. I think we should stop thinking of this as being a Republican versus Democrat divide. Um, there are Republican governors uh, in the U.S. who've done very well uh, with this virus, and some who've done abysmally. You know, I'm not letting them off the hook. Uh, but there is a study of leadership, I think, to be done because it's not just the United States one thing. This was 50 different epidemics in among the states, and you know, for instance. South Korea had fewer, South Korea, which has, I think, something like 30 million people in it, had fewer cases than, fewer more, fewer deaths than South Dakota, which has only 900,000 people. And South Dakota, uh, a Republican governor, had 12 times as many deaths as Vermont, also a Republican governor. Uh, so there's, there are nuances in terms of leadership that I think, you know, one of my favorite examples is Jim Justice, 
who's the Republican governor of West Virginia. He's a billionaire coal miner, not, and six foot seven. It's not the type of person that you would automatically think is, is going to have his heart on his sleeve. <laughs> but when this, when this virus hit, he addressed his constituents in West Virginia and said, we are one of the oldest and sickest states in the union. This virus is going to create havoc in our communities. We have to be prepared. He said about testing all the old folks in, in homes. He, he, you know, he, he, at night, he would address uh, West Virginians and talk about the people who died. I don't know any other governor that did that. And I'm not saying that West Virginia did an unparalleled job. They're kind of in the middle of you know states, but they should have been at the bottom. And it was because of the competence and compassion of the governor and his administration that it didn't do far worse. Do you think it was inevitable is the wrong word, but I mean, I was always struck by the point at which Trump basically delegated, that's I think a kind way to put it, the pandemic and managing the pandemic to governors and did not make it the management of it fully a federal response. It was a very kind of un-Rooseveltian, either Roosevelt, you know, kind of approach. And I mean, I mean, do you, in your own mind, when you kind of look back on that, I know you do talk some about the governors in the book and, um, I mean, should we be focused on that in terms of learning lessons, you know, in the U.S. case, that it really has to be a national effort? Or is that just too difficult to engineer in the United States? No, it's not difficult. And, you know, those plans that I told you about, the, the Obama playbook and the Crimson Contagion, they envisioned what would happen if nobody took control. Right. And uh it was it was clearly laid out uh, what needed to be done and you know which agencies needed to be in charge. It's just that the administration ignored them. Uh, you know, I leadership plays a huge role in this, and uh, but there were also I think three chances the U.S. had to make a difference, and one was had we been able to get into China and found out about the asymptomatic transmission, it would have made a big difference. Uh, you know, the health response would have had a totally different strategy. And then secondly, the CDC testing kit fiasco. Uh, it was unbelievable. This was uh, one of the great institutions in American history. I, I had done stories from out of the CDC when I was a young reporter and came away dazzled by the competence and the courage and the humility of the people that work there. And finally, there was the mass failure where uh, the Trump was, uh, was persuaded to uh, introduce the mask as an effective way to block the pandemic. In fact, it was our last chance. And uh, he said, it's voluntary. I'm not going to wear it. He even went to a mask making factory without a mask. I mean, the, how better to show his contempt uh, so at that point, I think he became a saboteur. So, you know, each of these is, tells a different story about the failure 
uh, of America, but we have to learn how to remedy those problems now because uh, we're still in a pandemic and another one may be on the way at any time. We have, we're, we're actually slightly over time and I wanna give one last question from Faye Williams, an A-level student from UK and let you just take it home with this question. What right. would you say is the biggest takeaway from this pandemic and preventing another occurrence? And in particular, how significantly could transparency between nations? So at now we're pushing you to the international level, stop such, uh, make a difference in the future. Would it? Well, I think in this case, you know, in the case of COVID-19, uh, every country, was bound to suffer. Uh, and in America was inevitably going to lose tens of thousands of people, but it didn't have to be hundreds of thousands. You know, we could say that if we had had the level of competence and trust in government that this, the Taiwanese had, for instance, or uh, even the Vietnamese, or uh, for that matter, the, the uh, I th- Norway, uh, you know, Angola, you know, these, these, there are countries that did very well. Uh, and had we done as well as those countries, and we were supposed to because we had the CDC, we had the NIH, we had all the greatest medical institutions, you know, the, the great medical schools, you know, we had everything that you could want uh, to stop such a thing like this. And we failed. Uh, so catastrophically. So we, uh, one thing we have to do is regain trust in our society and in, in each other and, uh, and in authority. Uh, we are not going to be able to fix these problems until as a society we come together uh, and, and address them wholeheartedly. And transparency, you know, it's, if, if a, a nation has a, a, a disease arise, and they dis, you know this happens every year, uh, new diseases arise and spread, uh, oftentimes they spread before the neighbors are aware of it. And we live in a time when diseases can become pandemics instantly because of world travel, you know, jet travel and so on. You can have a, a pandemic like this one, discovered almost at the same time uh, as, you know, as people hear about it. Uh, it you know, it's, it's already spread. It's already come to America. It's already in Spain. It's already in Italy. And, but we don't have any, we haven't got any vaccines. We have, we have to be able to, to recognize these things are going to happen, prepare for them, get the, you know, set up the vaccines for the future, and then create a you know immense storehouse of materials that we can call upon when it happens. We have to learn how to be prepared. So trust and preparation, I think, are the ingredients for a healthier future. Lawrence, that's a great place to leave it. On behalf of the Phelan U.S. Center at the LSE, I want to thank you for taking the time to to join us. Thanks everybody for joining us on the platform from all over the place. It's been Great to have you, Lawrence. I hope next time we'll be able to host you uh, here in London at the LSE. Me too. Bye now.